Amen. Come on, how about an air hug? I missed you last week. You may be seated. I was on vacation last week. Lanelle and I got away, a little cabin in Mount Ida, and I have a picture or two. We celebrated uh, four birthdays, actually. I'll show them to you. My two grandkids, Titus is one and Henry's three. It was the Paw Patrol theme. And the little girl behind me, uh, she had a birthday too, and she turned uh, a year older. <laughs> and let's see, next picture. Uh, obviously, that's me. I wanted my fish to look much bigger, so I took it myself. Uh, but I just celebrated my 44th spiritual birthday. Actually, yesterday, 44 years since I committed my life to Christ. I was raised in church, but at 19, I made a deliberate commitment where not only did I ask Jesus to forgive me, but to come in my life and save me. And listen, I dedicated my life to follow him, and I have done that consistently for 44 years. Show you one more a little funny before we go. You know, some people question whether little children have the uh, original sin that they inherited from Adam in their cute little hearts. And uh, I observe that to be true here. It's real short. We're watching TV now. So we all believe that little Titus is going to be bigger than Henry one day, and Henry better watch out. <laughs> well, listen, great to see you. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to the book of James, James chapter 2. We're doing a series called A Word to the Wise. It is about wisdom for everyday life. Wisdom means making the right choices. And uh, how many know good choices bring a better life? Bad choices cause problems, some of which you can never recover. But the theme of this series is simply this, that wise people apply God's Word to everyday life from the principles of the Bible. And this is what I want to communicate. The author James, likely the half-brother of Jesus Christ, he was one of the main leaders of the church in Jerusalem, James, Peter, and John. Uh, he originally wrote this letter, a very short book, five chapters. He wrote it to the Jews that had been dispersed throughout the Roman Empire. It's a book kind of like the book of Proverbs. I would say it's one of my favorite books outside of the Gospels. It's my favorite book in the New Testament because it's so practical. Uh, it just It's almost like every verse you read is something you can put into practice each day. Uh, James, incredibly, in these five chapters, he quotes 21 Old Testament books. Uh, he uh, makes 30 references to nature. And that's why it's so understandable. That's why it's so relatable because he, he touches things from everyday life. Fourteen times he refers to Jesus, his Sermon on the Mount. So uh, it's, a big, it's a big, big book, and uh, I think it will bless us. Now, last time I was with you, we looked at part three. And if you remember, we talked about a Christian's responsibility to help the poor. We talked about why people are poor. We talked even about some advantages of what it can do in our relationship with God. We talked about attitudes. We talked about a Christian's responsibility, what we do, what we don't do. And uh, anyway, I think that was beneficial. Of course, you can find it online. But today, we're going to look at two subjects. Number one kind of, is kind of a foundation for our Christian faith. Uh, it's about good works as the evidence that we're truly a Christian. I'm going to do some probing on that one. And the second one, I guarantee you, everybody will relate to, young and old alike. But our words have power. Let me know this tongue. Yeah, dang the thing. 
It can get you in heap big trouble, or it can make people love you and like you. And uh, we're going to explore that, and I think that'll help you today. So let's begin chapter 2 about this idea of good works as the evidence of what we will call true faith. Now, mind you, when we read our Bibles, we don't just grab out a verse, but what we want to do is we want to understand that verse in context of the broader picture of what he's been communicating. So again, last week he, we talked about uh, 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 the poor and the Christian's version or helping the poor. And he picks right up with the thought, verse 14. He says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds, no actions, no good works in their life? In other words, people that say, I'm a Christian, but yet there's not enough evidence to convict them in a court of law. In other words, you can't tell by watching them. If you, fo- if you followed them, if you got a camera in their room and watched what they did throughout the day, watched how they treated people, you wouldn't find any evidence that they're a genuine Christian, even though they say they believe in God. So this is what he, he's exploring. And he asks the question, can such faith save them? Now, most of us have been raised in, in, if you've been raised in what I'll call evangelical Christianity, Baptist, conservative Methodist, Presbyterian, uh, uh, Assemblies of God, you've been raised in, in, a, in, in decades of an understanding of what it means to be saved. Salvation, going to heaven when we die, transformation on this earth is a gift of God. And the way we receive that is by believing in Jesus Christ. How many of you have heard that all your life, pretty much? Yeah, John 3.16, my little Sunday school teacher, uh, two, two Sunday school room Methodist church, Julia Guy, has taught me John 3.16, for God so loved the world, say it with me, that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him would have everlasting life. And many people say they believe in Jesus, but it's just kind of a, a mental construct. It's just uh, it's something that we have in our minds, but it's never impacted our lives. And sadly, we're living under the illusion that we're right with God that we, we may not be. Now, no way do I want to cause you to question your salvation today, but I want you to ask yourself the question today, if I were brought in a court of law, would there be enough evidence in my life to convict me that I'm a Christian. This is kind of what James is saying, and he illustrates it like this. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. One of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs. What good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, yeah, good works, is dead. Now, this word dead, it means it's worthless, it's useless, it's meaningless. It is not true saving biblical faith if it doesn't produce a lifestyle of good works. Now, probably the most important statement I'll make in this section, our good works are the evidence of the reality of our faith, that our reality of our faith in Jesus is real. What do I mean by good works? Giving money to God's work, helping missionaries, uh, bringing Bibles around the world, uh, serving as an usher or a greeter, leading a life group, discipling another person, uh, spending extra time in prayer, praying for not only your needs but for the needs of people, sharing your faith, inviting people to church. It's just a, lo- a Christian lifestyle and certainly it embodies the character 
You know, there's times as a Christian when Linnell and I are watching a TV show, uh, we might have even seen it before, and it's on a different channel, and before they bleeped out words that we find offensive, and this one doesn't. You know what we do? We change the channel. Not because I'm a self-righteous person, but because I know it pleases the Lord, that I have to watch what comes into my life. Well, these are what we're talking about, good works. So what James is doing in this section is two things. Number one is he wants us to take an honest look at our life. We rarely talk about this, but James is going to say, look at your life to see if there are good works, good actions, good deeds, Christian acts that would suggest indeed you, you, you have saving faith. And secondly, he's going to encourage all of us to, as Christians to commit to do good works, not to save us, but because we're saved. And let me tell you why this is so important. I had an experience probably 15 years ago. I was asked by a member of our church to go to a funeral with them. And uh, her, her, I guess it was her nephew, his best friend had committed suicide. His best friend was about 18 years of old. It was a terrible, terrible thing. Uh, and when I made inquiry about the guy that had killed himself, and I don't believe suicide is the unpardonable sin, okay? But he killed himself. But when the question was asked about uh, uh, why, uh, what this guy's life was like, <laughs> he was a party animal. I mean, he partied hardy. He didn't go to church. You know, he was just, he, he cursed. I mean, he was just, you know, people liked him. I mean, you understand? But he didn't have any evidence at all that he was Christian. And um, when they did his sermonal sermon, two preachers came up. One said, I remember when he was 12 years old and he answered the altar call. He came and he shook my hand and he committed his life to Christ and he's in heaven. Next preacher comes up and says, I remember when I followed, I baptized him. Because of that baptism is identification in Christ, I know he's in heaven. And you know what? With all my heart today, I hope that's true. I don't believe you can just throw your salvation away or make a mistake and lose it. I don't believe you're saved one day and lost the next day. How I many you know Jesus said, no man can pluck you out of my hand? There's a confidence and an assurance and a knowing that when you've committed your life to Christ, you belong to Jesus. But I fear, and th- I've, I've been a Christian 44 years, I've been in Christian vocational ministry almost 40, I fear that a lot of people that come and shake the preacher's hand or maybe even get baptized are not truly converted. They had a mental belief, a cognizant belief that God exists. They have knowledge about Jesus Christ, but there's no evidence of change. There's nothing that verifies that their faith was real. This word believe in Jesus is a pregnant word in Scripture. It implies action. It implies the action of repenting or turning from your sins, of following Jesus. Jesus didn't just say, believe in me. Jesus said, follow me. So let's explore this a little deeper. Um, Now, very clearly, and I'm going to lay this as a foundation, James is not advocating, nor am I, salvation by works. In other words, you cannot do enough good things to go to heaven. And everybody said... Amen. The scripture that is the, it was the, actually one of the cardinal scriptures of uh, uh, the Protestant Reformation, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, it says you're saved by, by grace, a gift of God. You're saved by grace through faith, not by works, lest any man should boast. The New Living Translation translates verse 9, salvation is not a reward for the good things we've done. None of us can boast about it. 
In other words, the Holy Spirit reached out to you to draw you to Christ. He convicted you of your sins. The Holy Spirit graciously gave the gift of repentance leading to life. And all we did was say yes. The cross is all sufficient for anything to save us. No good work could save you. Mother Teresa could not do enough good things with the poor in India to save her. There's only one way we can be saved. That is in humility, looking to the Christ of the cross That his blood was absolutely sufficient to wash our sins away. His righteousness is imputed to us because we believed and trusted in him. But James says, if you've really trusted in Christ, you'll have good works. Let's keep reading. Verse 18. Well, someone will say, you have faith and I have deeds or works. And then James says, you show me that your faith is real without deeds. I'll show you my faith is real by my deeds. For example, let's just say if someone ran in the back door and said, the church building is on fire, get out. What would we do? Yeah, we'd get out. You'd run out this front door if the fire's in the back. Why? Because you believed him. You wouldn't sit there and say, man, this is a pretty good sermon. I think I'm going to sit here a while or, or, you know... It's just hot outside, and I don't want to go outside just yet. Or, you know, my favorite restaurant doesn't open till 12, and I I think I'm going to stay here just a little bit. You understand? When you believe, you act. James says, I'll show you my faith by my deeds. You believe there's one God. (laughs) Good. Demons believe that. But you're a foolish person. Then he said, you foolish person, do you want some evidence that faith without deeds is useless? And then he's going to give us an example of Abraham and Rahab. Now, James is not arguing, he's not uh, 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 pro-works, anti-faith, or pro-faith, anti-works. He's simply making a basic statement. Genuine faith is accompanied by good works. And the assurance of our salvation is based on the Word of God. But the evidence of it is in the lifestyle that we live. Come on, somebody say praise the Lord. You know, this, this rubs us kind of the wrong way. It rubbed Martin Luther the wrong way. If you remember Martin Luther, he was the primary voice that started the Protestant Revolution, uh, Reformation. The Protestant Reformation in the Middle Ages. It was the Dark Ages, the Catholic Church. Catholic means universal. The one church, and they had basically steered from salvation by grace. It had degenerated into works, indulgences. You know, uh, you could buy your way in and those kind of things. And, and, and Martin Luther said, look, guys, we're missing it. It's all about the cross. It's all about Jesus Christ. But you know what? Even Jesus said, if you love me, what will you do? Obey my commandments. So Martin Luther is not at odds with James. James is just simply saying, I want you to understand that salvation starts with faith, but true salvation manifests itself in good works. He's going to give us an example, verse 21. Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for... Abraham was considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar. Now let me tell you what happened in that story. Abraham was chosen by God, just like all of us, for a purpose. Abraham, if you look at the Bible, he is every bit on par with the greatness of Moses. You won't find many people that have had, that have had impact on even modern life today more than Abraham. Because Abraham, again, our John 3.16, believing in Jesus, Abraham was the one that taught the world about faith in God. And God was going to make Abraham what was called the father of faith. 
And uh, here's how he did it. Abraham is 75 years old, and God said, look at the stars in the sky. Look at the sand on the seashore. I'm going to give you so many children that your descendants are going to number the world like that. You know the only problem? He didn't have any kids. He and his wife couldn't have a child. He's 75. Sarah's just a little younger. And God makes him a promise. And for the next 25 years, he believes God and follows God for that promise. And then lo and behold, Abraham is 99 years of age. Sarah's a little bit younger, and they have a baby. How would you like to have a baby at 90, ladies? <laughs> well, anyway, they have a child. It's Isaac. It's the promised child. God did what he said he would do. But then the, the almost unimaginable thing happened. God said, I want you to take that child, and I want you to sacrifice him on the altar at Mount Moriah. Now, I want you to understand this. Genesis 22, in the Hebrew Bible, it's called the Akedah, the binding of Isaac. God never intended him to sacrifice his son, but it was a test to see if he would obey God. You read it, Genesis 22, 1, God tested Abraham. God told him to take his son and sacrifice him, his one and only son now, that's going to populate the stars and everything else. And God says, sacrifice him. You know what Abraham did? He immediately he got up the next morning. He got a donkey. He got some wood. He got a knife. And on their way up to Mount Moriah, uh, uh, Isaac says, Hey, Dad, you're getting a little older here, and you've got most of the things for the sacrifice, but you're forgetting one thing. Where's the sacrifice? And you know what Abraham said? God will provide. God will provide. See, we're learning about faith. He lays this boy on this altar. Abraham, uh, Isaac, a type of Christ, submits to it. He raises his knife in obedience to God. Because later in the Bible said God, Abraham believed that God would raise the child from the dead. But when he raised the, uh, raised the knife in the air, let me tell you what Scripture says in Genesis 22. An angel sent from God said, don't lay a hand on the boy. The angel said, for, say it with me, now I know. God saying... God knew by his foreknowledge, but now through his actions, his faith is revealed. Now I know that you truly fear God. The Lord says, I'm going to certainly bless you and multiply your descendants like the sand on the seashore. And through your descendants, all the nations of the earth will be blessed because you obeyed. So what was his good work? His good work was obedience and going to that mountain. And you know what God did? God gave Abraham such a blessing and a blessed name that the entire world looks back to him today as the father of faith. Come on, give the Lord a good, a good hand today. See, this is what faith does. Now, let's go back to James. Look at verse 22. You see, his faith and his actions were now, that's probably the most important verbiage in this whole section. Faith and actions work together. It was not just faith, because that's not true biblical faith. It was not just works, you can't save yourself, but it's a faith that did good things, that obeyed and served God, and that was the evidence. His faith was made complete by what he did, just like our faith is made complete by what we do. The scripture was fulfilled. Abraham believed God. It was credited to him for righteousness. Look at verse 25. In the same way was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. Just briefly her story. 
Joshua is bringing Israel into the promised land. They go into cities. They're spying one of the cities out, and, 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 and the guards are looking for them. And they meet this woman. Her name is Rahab. And uh, Rahab is, is a believer in God. She's not a Jew, but she recognizes the true God, Jehovah, Yahweh. And she says, you know what? I want to follow this God. So rather than turning them in, she took this action of faith and she hid the spies, and she even lied about it. And lo and behold, guess what happened? The spies then got away, and when they come and take the city, uh, Rahab put a red or a scarlet cord out her window. And this scarlet cord was a picture of the blood of Jesus Christ. It, it, it's, it's a type and a shadow. And when they came to her house, she was spared. She was protected because her faith did something. Her faith had action to it. And this is the message of Abraham. This is why I, as a Christian, uh, you know, I look back at my life. I was a sinner, but I was a good sinner. I never murdered anybody. I never raped anybody. But I did a lot of other things, just like you did. But if you'd have asked me as a 16, 17-year-old, if you died today, would you go to heaven? I'd say, oh, yeah. Why, John? I, I believe in Jesus. Only problem, there was no evidence in my life. It was an intellectual ascent of what I learned, and it was no heart transformation. It was August 15th, 1976. A Gideon, a few days earlier, had given me a, a, a Bible. And I read the back of page of that Bible, The Plan of Salvation. And on that night, I got in my pillow that night. See, I'd been devouring that Bible for days. Here's how salvation works. It's like God starts dealing with our heart. Here I am, a 19-year-old with everything is going great, it seems like. I'm going to college. I'm on a scholarship. I'm dating the head majorette and the head cheerleader. I've got all these friends and buddies. There's, a, there's beer, in, uh, 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 beer always in the trunk and other things in my pocket. You understand what I'm talking about? Come on, Holy Joes. <laughs> I, was just, I was just the guy you went with, go out and have party and have fun with. But I was working as, for my dad on the summer driving the tractor. We were farmers. And uh, I, during the, that day, I would just cry. The craziest thing. Now, I'm going to share this with you. I'd start my day. I'd smoke a little bit. I'd go through the morning, and after lunch, I'd smoke a little bit. And at the end of the day, going home, I'd smoke a little bit. So I could go out and have fun that night and smoke some more. What was I doing? I was trying to fill a void in my heart. And while I was smoking and having fun, I would cry because something was missing in my life. And God supernaturally put that Gideon in my life. He gave me a Bible. He told me Jesus Christ could change your life. And I read about it. I read a verse that said, as many as received him to those he gave the right to become sons and daughters of God. And the light came on. I'd always believed, but I never humbled myself, received him, and began to follow him. And when I did that, everything changed. Come on, give him a big hand today. Let me wrap up this last part. Chapter 3, this is very practical. It's about our words, our tongue. Words have power to build up or destroy. Let's talk about the power of the tongue. Now, the first thing he says, he says, not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. 
Now, I spent more time on this in the other services. I'm not going to do that today. But uh, basically, there, one of the offices of the early church was the office of a teacher. There was the apostle, the prophet, the evangelist, pastor, and the teacher. And what James is saying is, look, guys, you influence people's eternal soul. And if you don't say the right thing with your words, remember, say this is what we're talking about now, words and tongue. If you don't communicate the right thing, God's going to judge you more harshly on judgment day. You're sitting here listening to me today, hopefully because I'm teaching you correctly the word of God. But if I teach you incorrectly, if I don't declare to you the whole counsel of God, if I fail to talk about cultural things lest I offend you, even though they're biblical, God will judge me more severely. So this is what he's saying. He's saying, listen, you that teach, be careful. He's, he's telling people that teach, listen, don't teach for the money. Don't teach for the, 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 the accolades like the Pharisees did. Don't teach because, you know, people will say you're better or whatever thing like that. You be a humble servant of God and watch the words come out of your mouth, okay? But look at verse 2. Let's, let, this is, relates to all of us now, very practical. It says, we all stumble in many ways. Now he's talking about what we say. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. When we put bits into the mouth of a horse to obey us, think of the bit. Now he's going to compare the tongue and its power to a bit of a horse and to the rudder of a ship. This bit can make the horse obey us and turn the whole animal. How many know you can be, uh, you can walk up to, well, let's just say that you, uh, um, you have an accident. You bump somebody on state line, whatever, you're leaving church or you, you, whatever you're getting off work. You hit somebody and uh, it's their fault. And uh, they pulled out in front of you. You can either get out and start slamming the door and say, you sorry, somebody, didn't you just see that light was just red? And Don't you know? You know what I'm talking about. And they're just as liable to pull out a gun, come on now, or have a bigger stick than you do. But if you get out of the car and if you say, oh, man, this wasn't the way we wanted to start our day, was it? Man, I know you didn't mean to do this. Listen, I sure didn't mean to, but let's figure this thing out. See, the Bible says a soft answer turns away wrath. Our tongue has power. Let me uh, uh, notice what it says, verse 5. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. I want to illustrate this to you with a picture. This is a picture of the largest wildfire in California history. That house that's burning, it was one of 280 houses and structures that burned but listen, 410,000 acres, 400,000 acres burned, 280 houses burned, largest wildfire in California. You know how it started? There was this guy in his backyard or in his pasture, and he had a metal stake he was driving in the ground. Think like, you know, like around here we use these metal T-posts. He's just driving a stake in the ground with a hammer. And when he hits it, could have been with a sledgehammer, it, 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 it glanced off of it and a spark came out. And that spark went in that crazy brown grass. And that grass just caught on fire and he couldn't put it out. Well, you know what James is saying? Your tongue can do that much damage. Your tongue can destroy your marriage. Your tongue can, destroy, your tongue can run every employee out of your office. Your tongue can cause your children to hate you. Your tongue can cause you to be kicked out of a ball game. 
Your tongue can bring you in front of the judge, and if you smart off to him, your tongue can get you five more years. See, our tongue has power. This is not a new thought. Proverbs 18, 21 says, words kill and words... Isn't it interesting? They can kill or give life. They're either poison or fruit. And here's the deal. You choose. Now, I want to illustrate this to you with a short video about the impact of the words of two different fathers on their sons. I think this will speak to you. See, there is a story of a major league baseball player who's speaking to inmates in prison. One of the inmates asks him, how did you become a professional ball player, sir? To which he says, you know, I think it started when I was a boy. I would play catch with my dad and he would always say, you, you, you keep throwing the ball like that, son, and you'll end up in the major leagues one day. You keep swinging the bat like that, son, and you'll end up in the major leagues one day. And here I am, a professional ball player. The room became quiet. And the inmate who asked the question, he said, you know, the same thing happened to me. When I was a boy, my father told me that I was good for nothing and that one day I would end up in prison. And here I am. See, there is. Words have power. I remember when I was 19, uh, you, you know, my mom and dad always loved me, I always knew it all my life. But my dad had a temper. Dad had me when he was 19. He was a Depression-era child. They farmed, and a farmer was always still on a banana peel, you know, from bankruptcy. And uh, I, I was 19, and uh, I got in the truck with him, and I had done something that just blew the r lid off his roof. And, man, he just said something to me that struck me like a knife. I was always a very sensitive person. I'm probably too sensitive for my own good, probably part of my calling. What it was, my grandmother had given me a plant. We all live close together. I, I, I grew up with both my grandparents. That's, that, that's one of the tragedies of our modern culture, is family is so fragmented. But one of my grandmothers, she grew flowers at her home. She was at Green Thumb, probably where I got a lot of my love for gardening. She gave me a plant to bring to my mom. So I'm getting out of the truck with my grandfather. My dad's saying, hurry up, let's go. I jump in the car with dad. And uh, uh, I said, oh, wait a second, I forgot something. I went back and got that flower. Now here dad's thinking about 500 acres that needs planting or harvesting or whatever. And I got this stupid flower. And he just said something to me that just struck me. And there was a part of me that wanted to punch him at 19 but the other part just turned away from him, and I, tears started coming down my face, and I wouldn't let him see. Notice I knew my dad loved me. My dad is a dedicated Christian today. He goes to church. When I go to see him on Wednesday night, he won't even hang out with me. He's going to church. Jesus has changed his life. Listen, I've got junk in my character just like you do, and just like my dad did. And one of the things that has power to harm and destroy people is our tongue. Verse 6 is the tongue. I'm going to help you with it too. Because you're not, you don't have to just live with, you don't have to just continue that pattern. The tongue is a fire. Look at verse 6. It's a world of evil among all the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body. 
It sets the whole course of one's life on fire and is itself set on fire by hell. In other words, the devil somehow takes the junk that's in us and he spews it out of us. We let him spew it out of us and it destroys. He goes on to say all kinds of animal and birds have been tamed, but no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. Here's my question. There's a little picture here. Uh, that's somebody's sweet little baby. That's some grandma's perfect angel. You know, but it has the power to break grandma's heart, to end him in jail if he talks to the policeman in the wrong way when he stopped. It has the power to make his girlfriend leave him. It has the power one day to run his kids out of his life. It has the power to one day to make someone want to pull a gun and shoot him. Is it the tongue or is it something deeper? Jesus said it was something deeper because how many know you can get on Facebook and write the most vile things? I don't understand this. How can people say such vile, wicked things on Facebook? They're not using their tongue. It's just coming out of them. Listen to what Jesus said. I want you to read this with me. Luke 6, 45. Jesus said... Um, people speak, say it with me, people speak the things that are in their hearts. So what I say comes out of here. So if I want to change the way I talk, I've got to change my heart and my mind. For time's sake, I'm going to skip the last couple verses, verses 9 through 12. They basically, James says, out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. You're praising the Lord, singing about the blood on Sunday, but on, 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 on Tuesday you're asking God to damn something and calling somebody a you-know-what. James is saying this just shouldn't be. Uh, which, by the way, I used to be a professional cursor. I could cuss with the best of you, okay? So I'm not talking down at you today. I understand. That's the way we communicated. My brothers and sisters, this shouldn't, this, this shouldn't be. A believer's tongue should be, not be inconsistent. Our tongue must be controlled, listen now, controlled and cleansed from the influence of evil. And I want to give you some good news in these last few minutes. The Holy Spirit can help us. I don't care how you talk. I don't care how you talk to people. I don't care how much you curse. I don't care how much you ask God to damn things and all that. The Holy Spirit can help you. Now, because here's the deal. You, just like I knew it was wrong, my mother used to tell me cursing was wrong. My grandmother used to tell me it was wrong, but I just did it anyway until God began to get a hold of my heart. Let me tell you how God can help you change the way you talk. Uh, these are very practical, simple things, but they're profound. And I have found that it changed me. Here's the first one. Pray in your prayers Ask the Holy Spirit to change you. Ask the Holy Spirit to change you. Let me tell you what the Holy Spirit can do. James chapter 5 verse 19 says this. When you follow the desires of your sinful nature. What's that? That's the heart that Jesus was talking about. The results are very clear. And he, he says about eight. I'm going to give you two. The first one is quarreling. The second one is outbursts of anger. Now, isn't this what we're talking about? Okay, that's coming from your sinful nature. But look at verse 22. When you submit to the Holy Spirit, when you submit to God, when you ask God to help you, the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. 
And there's about eight. I'll give you four. Love, patience, kindness, and what? Self-control. Do you think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rail into you and lambast you and holler at you and shout at you if my level of patience is high, if my love is high, and my ability to have self-control is high? Of course not. And you know, whatever comes out of your mouth in an unexpected crisis is what's inside. I, I, I remember one time, it shows the difference in my life, well, I was with Larry Myers, and we were, we were driving to build a church in Mexico, and we were in some, one major city, and we were coming down a two-lane road, and this truck started to, to, uh, to come over in our lane. I mean, big time. When, when I was 18, if that would have been happening, I'd have said, oh, S, you know what. But you know what came out of my mouth without even thinking? I said, Jesus. It just came out. Because my heart had been changed. Ask the Holy Spirit to change you. Now, very much akin to that, this second one, we have to admit we have a problem. It's the starting place for change. We're used to it. Again, I'm not knocking my dad. I love my dad. My dad loves me. I always knew it. He didn't, want to, he didn't intentionally try to hurt me. But, but that's how he learned to cope with life. That's how he learned to take, you know, he was basically working with people that either didn't want to work, didn't know how to work, and he just had to kind of move them along. And that's how he learned that, that, that was his temperament. But when we admit we have a problem, that's the starting place of change. We've got to humble ourselves. Ask God and ask the other people, person to forgive us when we speak hurtful words. Let me tell you where I get that. Proverbs 28, 13. It says, people who conceal their sin will not prosper. But if they confess. confess, confess in turn, they'll find mercy. There's something powerful that will happen to you. Because I can guarantee you this is happening. I guarantee you there's people that are here right now and you're thinking about someone that you've said something harmful and hurtful to. If you will either talk to them face to face or if you will send them a text... And apologize to them for what you said, whatever, last Tuesday. Or the way that you talk about them. Demeaning words. Non-encouraging. Whatever it may be. It's a starting place. Now, if you've been doing it a long time, chances are they've closed their spirit to you. And it's going to bounce off. But you've got to just keep on, keep on, keep on. Because your words have the power to change their life. Yeah. Let me give you another one. And this is pretty basic. But read your Bible. And you'll know the difference between right and wrong. This seems basic. You know, as I said, I've been a Christian 44 years because God has kept me. But let me tell you one thing that I can only give credit to how I've stayed a Christian. Every day I read my Bible and pray. I miss a day sometimes, but I'm back on the next day. And you know why I do that? Because God speaks to me. I want you to pretend just a second that you struggle with lying and bragging. And you're a Christian. You're trying to follow and serve the Lord, but it's still a part of your, your character. And you just read in your Bible, Proverbs 8, 13. It says, if you respect the Lord, you're going to hate evil. Well, you're pretty good so far. But then it says, I hate pride and bragging, evil ways and... And it's almost like that verse jumps off the page. Have you ever experienced that? We read in the Bible, and it's just like God's talking to you. This is how the Holy Spirit produces change. And I'll give you one last thing. Make a decision today. 
that we're going to speak words that build people up and not tear people down. Let me give you a tremendous scripture on this. Ephesians 4.29, don't use foul or abusive language, but let everything you say be good and helpful so your words will be an encouragement to those who hear them. Come on, give the Lord a good hand today. He's worthy of our praise. Why don't you stand to your feet with me, and we're going to dismiss in a second. We're going to have a, a prayer and a closing song. Honored that you've been here today. When you leave, do your best social distance. We have these front doors open where you can slip out front doors, the back doors. When you go, leave a little space between you. But uh, uh, if you have your offering to bring, you can drop it there. Uh, if you have a visitor's card, if you, you know, want more about this church, you like what you hear, just fill it out. And if you'll go stop by the table in the lobby, they'll give you a little gift there and we'll get acquainted. But uh, I want our prayer team to come to the front right now. We're going to have a closing prayer. If you're on our prayer team, just slip on up here. And uh, here's how we do this. If you've got something special in your life that you're needing God to help you with, uh, there's been a struggle. There's just things going on. You don't want to leave here without being prayed for. These are the folks that's going to do it. But the way we'll know who you are is when everybody else is leaving, we just want you to sit down, and they'll be looking for you, and, and they'll come to you. But I want to add this as a part of this prayer opportunity. You know the first part of that message when James said faith without works is dead, useless, meaningless, no faith at all. Maybe you did an honest look at your life. And what you cannot do is, is ask yourself, do you make mistakes? Mistakes are not the evidence of a Christian. Come on. How many know that we're all guilty of sin? We've all sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. What you're looking for is the evidence of good works. What you're looking for is what you do with your time, your treasure, your talent. Are you serving the Lord? Are you giving to His work? Are you helping people in His name? And maybe you're uncertain. But maybe there's been some clarity come today. And maybe today you would like to truly commit your life to Christ. You would like, you know, God's got His part. Jesus died on the cross 2,000 years ago. He said it's finished. What He meant by that was, is the opportunity to be forgiven for your sins and have eternal life. He did His part. Our part is, remember how we, if that cross represents Him? We walk away from Him, but one day we stop and we turn our heart towards Him. We say, I believe in you. We receive Him and we start to follow. Maybe that's what you need to do today. If you're here today and maybe you're carrying the weight of your sins and you want to pray and receive God's forgiveness. Maybe you've tried to find happiness in the world, but it's just not there. And you know it's in Christ. We'd like to pray for you today as you commit your life to Jesus Christ. Is Pastor Travis, one of our executive pastors here. And uh, if you want to make a commitment to Jesus, if you want to settle that thing today, come let him pray with you, and we'll give you something that's going to help you. But uh, go ahead and sing this last song, and then they'll dismiss you. I want to say I love you, and I'm sure glad you're here today. If you need prayer, you stay tuned. God bless you. There's no place I would rather be. There's no place I would rather be.
do every service. The worship team is going to remain up front. We'll worship with you as long as you'd like to hang out with us. Uh, our prayer team's up front. If you need prayer for anything at all, let us know. Uh, all the exits should be open, uh, so feel free to be dismissed at any time. And uh, we just pray that you have a blessed Sunday.